automation is king. It might even break um, staffing models here where, where you're accustomed to a certain mix of like low cost and high cost resources because you've got all this sort of repetitive work that the low cost resources are doing. But as you automate more, you, you can't actually hold on to the old mix. You, you got to change the mix, um, which ultimately might be good for everybody because now you're creating more high paying jobs. Well, I think we could all agree that the pace of technology change has been accelerating in recent years, but this year saw an unprecedented amount of change. And that's why Rackspace started doing our quarterly tech trends ebook, which is what Tolga Tarhan, Rackspace corporate CTO and I recently sat down to discuss. So gone are the days of the annual predictions. It's time to start looking at these changes quarterly. Now each quarter, we choose three of the most significant changes that are impacting or will impact modern business. I hope you enjoy the conversation. The line between application and infrastructure is virtually invisible in these modern apps. The kind of thing that a global computing fabric with immense resilience and scale can deliver without even breaking a sweat. That's really what the promise of the cloud's always been. It's all focused on the business objectives. That's where we craft the plan. In the tech world, we like to celebrate the lone genius, but I'm just going to tell you right now, they're just the convenient face as founders to focus on. Welcome to Cloud Talk. Here's your host, Jeff Diverter. So I am joined again by Rackspace Corporate CTO, Tolga Tarhan, to talk about this quarter, Q4's Tech Trends Viewpoint eBook. Welcome, Tolga. Hey there, Jeff. How's it going? Hey, another day in podcast paradise. Thanks for making the three Pete. Is this three or four? I, I think it's. I think it's three. I think it's three. And I think it's a. It's a world record here. Yeah. 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 You're just trying to stay ahead of you know other unnamed executives. That's right. That's right. I'm actually trying to get my total listener count up above uh, everyone else. Everyone else. All right. So everybody go find all of the episodes you can find that Tolga's in so that he can beat his boss in That's downloads. Right. That's right. That's right. All right. So today we get to talk about the new ebook that we just put out. Um, you've authored, this is the second one that you've done. We, had, we do them quarterly. And uh, of course, the last one, last quarter. And, and this time it's our, our tech predictions for what's happening this quarter and going forward. So excited to, uh, to dig into that conversation. Yeah, look, uh, but it's not fair that you always ask the questions. And I feel like as a, as a reward for the third time on the show, I should get to ask the questions and you can be in the hot seat. I'm a little nervous about this, but I'll, I'll play along. Let's go. Let's go. All right. So in part of this ebook, your contribution was researching uh, RPA, robotic process automation. And I want to hear about what you found out. Is this, is this like a Terminator robots from the future coming, coming to the past or more like the matrix or which kind of robot are we landing on? Uh, yeah, the ones that are helpful and not ones that, that kill hopefully anyway. So RPA, it's an, it's a, a uh, intimidating name when you think about it, robotic process automation. When I when I first heard it, it made me think about, uh, you know, the robots in auto factories that are painting and doing other things. It's like, hey, it's a repeatable process. The robots are doing a great job uh, and they can do it 24 hours a day. But RPA, when we think about it in the world of technology, is really about taking processes that People tend to what we call swivel chair or, or they're the interface, that API between one 
one system and another system. And usually when I say system, I'm being a little bit generous as well. I think a, a great example is think about an inbox that just gets a bunch of invoices that come in from customers. And those invoices have to make it into the, you know, the billing system uh, at large inside of the organization. Well, there's nothing that necessarily exists to do that because in email, it gets a tons of other things that aren't invoices in them. But what RPA can do is it can monitor a common inbox. It can look for things that look like uh, look like invoices and you can train it to open the invoice to know how to look inside of that document and choose where's the invoice number, where's the PO number, where's the customer number, where are the amounts, these sorts of things. Ultimately, if you think about how you break the process out, it's probably taking everything in that inbox and dumping it into an Excel document and then running another process to then ingest that into the billing system. So it's these sorts of processes, these these sorts of highly repeatable things that happen uh, the same way every time and happen a lot inside of organizations that by and large, we've shoved people into. And over the years, most of these people, have, these jobs have been offshored. And, uh, and now there's software that helps take those processes, remove the human element and, and drive productivity forward. So it's interesting, right? We um, we invented computers to to make these processes better, and then we um, created so many different systems that we had to have humans serve as the glue between the systems. And now with RPA, we're trying to remove the human glue and replace it with more machinery. Is that that fair? A hundred percent. You said it a lot more succinctly than I did. But when you think about organizations, every organization, I mean, there's just countless people doing these sorts of jobs. I mean, we put these point in time systems in place for different roles, like an accounting system. But yet, how is that going to talk to email? Who would ever thought it would need to talk to email other than sending out an invoice, maybe? Now, why do we call it um, robotic process automation? Like you don't usually hear the word robot in other automation contexts in, in, uh, in computers. Where'd this come from? Well, it comes from, I think, a large part from the example I gave before. You know, you had, think about the, the scenario of, of painting cars as they go across the, the line uh, when they're being manufactured. And humans used to do this job, but humans would get sick. Humans make mistakes. Um, humans need brakes. Uh, so they put, they put robots in place because what happens when that model of car goes across is that car gets painted the exact same way every single time. Uh, and so when we think about these processes as they exist in the knowledge worker space, these are processes that happen every time. So what happens is um, these folks who are, who are designing the solutions on the, the software, uh, the robotic process automation software, is they're ultimately creating a little bot, they're called little robots that are looking for the exact same condition, watching for a car to come across the line. Uh, there, there's a, there's a uh, tag that comes across and says what color it's supposed to be and off it goes to do its job. And same thing holds true inside of an organization, whether it's, um, you know, use the example of an invoice or think about a loan application uh, that that needs to be processed. Well, you know, it's a finite number of forms, although more in a, in a loan application than you'd find inside of, a, of an invoice. Um, but it's just going to process those things. You set rules and it executes the exact same way every single time. So it really is a little software robot. In fact, uh, several of the, the companies, actually, that's how they charge for their software is by the number of, of bots or robots that you unleash on your organization. Wow, that's, that's pretty interesting. So in a, in a perfect world, you might integrate these systems with APIs. If everything was perfectly exposed and there was real clear APIs, you might just say, look, I'm going to connect system A to system B, and this is how these fields map over, and these are the transformations that take place. It sounds to me like RPA fills the void when 
really the only way to do something is with some kind of UI or some kind of uh, uh, suboptimal API layer. And so it sort of gives you an API integration model for things that aren't very friendly. Yeah, absolutely it does. And it also helps buy some time because the real solution is to define an all-up solution that solves for these things organization-wide. But in lieu of doing that, you've got these these core um, companies who have offerings like Automation Anywhere is one of them. And they come in and they fill that gap. Yeah, and let's talk about how um, that's going to advance the the state of the art here. So as you... Uh, modernize these processes. Maybe it lets you take these legacy systems that you haven't uh, upgraded as much as you'd like and extract data and value and and, um, outcomes that those systems drive into newer systems. It's kind of lets you build these bridges and maybe you can now adopt newer technology because if you have, you know, behind the scenes, you can have a robot kind of pushing information back and forth. Right. And so let's, let's extend the, our example of, uh, of the invoice. And now that, that bot can actually run as an identity uh, on your network. So now we're connecting to Active Directory inside of the organization. So now we're up to three systems, which, which allows us to know what identity is actually doing that work. And that identity can either be the same one if you have a good federated integrated system with the accounting system. If you don't, well, then you can give it an ID on the other side to make sure that you you keep all that corporate governance and, and a good paper trail, if you will, of what actually occurred. Um, but it does absolutely open the door of, hey, if I can solve for this problem, what else could I do with it? Now, are these then just kind of short-term things that are put in place to um, until you can you can find a long-term solution? Or what's the what's the life of these solutions? Well, it's going to be as long as the situation exists. I mean, a company needs to be aware they're going to spend some money here on the software, you know, either paying by the bot or enterprise license type stuff. But by and large, uh, these bots operate at about 15 to 1 from a cost perspective when you think about about, um, what it costs to build and to maintain them over time. And so uh, there are still some costs associated with it. It's much less. And if you think about also the example I gave that, you know, a lot of the people who have done these jobs, these jobs have gone offshore. Well, now that you've got robotic process automation engineers creating these things, these jobs are actually being repatriated. So we're bringing jobs back uh, into the organization to be able to create them. And they'll exist as long as that need exists. But what it also does is instead of, again, let's just beat the horse here around um, the invoice example is not necessarily having to go buy a brand new billing system uh, just to have better integration with email, let's say, because RPA can fill that gap and you can get more more value out of the, your sunk costs. Yeah, there's sort of that like um, kind of macroeconomic idea here that, you know, some people fear that as you replace humans with automation that there's going to be nothing left for humans to do. But I think history has shown us that as you free up humans to do kind of fuel higher up the stack uh, work that it simply just advances things more quickly and uh, and that in fact it frees up a lot of intellectual capital for other work. Well, it does. It allows those folks to do things that are more engaging. I mean, would you like to just be copying stuff out of email and typing them, then retyping them into another system? Or would you rather design this? The other thing that's super interesting is think about the salary that you would pay somebody. I mean, we're offshoring this stuff, so we know we're not paying a whole lot for that work to get done. But a, an RPA engineer, on average, making about $97,000 a year right now, which is not a bad salary from somebody who was just you know copying stuff across. If they go spend six months and learn this the tool sets, they could be doing this work today and doubling or tripling or quadrupling their salary. 
But it brings up a super, you bring up a really interesting point, and we're going to use it as a segue to sort of draw us into what the next prediction is. And you talk about when we use automation to remove the trivial or the things that computers should just do. You know, you made one of the the predictions around what is going to happen to that level one engineer as we look to automation and for AI to help to solve support tickets inside of organizations. Yeah, that's what's interesting about all of this, right? We keep talking, I think we talked last time about how sort of uh, there's cycles to this technology. Um, and and here again, we've been talking about automation for a long time in the context of um, infrastructure, infrastructure automation. And, you know, when we apply it to business processes, we're calling it RPA. But when we apply it to infrastructure and applications, we just call it automation. But it's not yeah. any different. It's essentially just look, do we need somebody to watch for the failure to push the restart button or to run the playbook, right? Uh, mature organizations develop kind of standard playbooks for when things go wrong. And it's not to say that every scenario can be automatically solved, but how many of those scenarios could you automate away by writing your code book, your, your run book as code, as opposed to in a Word doc? Well, and, and it's also kind of draws the difference between RPA and what's next in the automation space. So RPA really can only deal with very set conditions. I always get an email in this one inbox or that 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 invoice always shows up in one folder. And the the financial the, the dollar figure is always in the exact same spot. But when when the automation has to start to make some decisions based on what it's finding, that's an evolution in RPA. And now we're talking about what's called cognitive automation. And that's really where we're getting into when we think about how do we solve for uh, when things go bump in the night in a monitoring system against applications and systems, because decisions have to be made and then resolutions applied. Right. I mean, at the, at the, in the simplest form, right, auto scaling can be thought of as your like most simple sort of, hey, if if load is above this value, add more servers. If load is below this value, terminate some. That That's kind of like your most basic um, reactive automation that a level one engineer would have done a while ago. And that we take that for granted today. You would never design the system in a modern context to to wait for the engineer to do that work. Now, in uh, the next level of that, or, well, there's many more levels of that, but maybe the end state of that is you get to sort of AI trying to make decisions about either the, ideally the, the failure before it occurs. Like, so, hey, mm. I see this trend happening and I've seen this pattern before. And that pattern usually means there will be a load spike and I'm going to preemptively launch more instances. Or I've learned that at Fridays at three in the morning, there's a load spike because there's some batch job. And so I'm going to just, you know, deal with that spike automatically before it starts to show up in the monitoring metrics. And so, you know, there's uh, there's a lot of possibilities here. And I think we're just in the infancy of how we're going to apply machine learning to operations. But it's, it's a pretty obvious space to apply it to, given that, you know, it's sort of combining two of the most modern technologies together. Absolutely. When, when we start to talk about automation in the context of operations, it's co- effectively called AI ops. Moogsoft is a company we work with a lot and is, is a leader in that space. And that's helping you know us here at Rackspace to solve for some of these. How do I scale or, you know, 
this this web service always, you know, when this condition happens, you just bounce the web service. We've paid humans to do that for countless years. Rackspace, 22 years in existence. And, you know, we've got this multi-tiered level of, of engineers from one to two, three, four, and then architects and so forth. Well, you know, a lot of the work that those folks in the in the tier one were doing, we're able to use systems for. Now, it makes everybody worried. What happens to those engineers? Well, you know what? They get to do more engaging work. If we can take 60% of the restart a web service off of their plate, then we can actually give them work that engages and challenges them to be uh, at their day and also to be be better at what they do. That's right. And and so it's not about, um, it's about redirecting those resources to advancing the state of the art more quickly, as opposed to just reacting to that kind of basic response. And and look, I think it has a trickle effect throughout the whole engineering hierarchy. So now your level one mm-hmm. engineers are getting more sophisticated and that, therefore your level two engineers are moving further up the stack and so on and so forth. And I think it does does create some um, some benefits all the way through that whole stack. But at the end of the day, it does, I would say, threaten the level one engineer role as we know it. I don't think it's, yeah. it's not about the individuals. I think those individuals will, will move up. But but the role of, hey, I just respond to the alert and I run a pretty typical playbook and it's the same playbook every time. I, I, there's no reason that that will be a human going forward. Absolutely not. And, you know, as technology evolves in all areas of our lives, you know, we're going to see changes like that. Who knows, you know, who's going to be driving the truck as as things are delivered from one side of the country to the other, let alone who's going to be, you know, doing that tier one type of a work. But what it always does is while, while it says, like you rightly say, that as we know the tier one role, the level one job, you know, goes away, it creates opportunity should the individual want to see the opportunity. And it goes, you know, a couple of different directions, um, whether they are more focused on level two, three or four type work or becoming architects or software developers or or do they actually want to get involved in helping to, to code some of the, the responses on the AI ops side? We've seen a ton of that inside of Rackspace where people are finding entire careers of managing the artificial intelligence that's doing the job that they used to do. Well, and even that's going to be interesting, right? So we're um, like take data science is a really good example of how this automation thing works. A couple of years ago, you'd hire like PhD level experts to go build your AI models. And, you know, we're not talking about this in the ebook this time around, but, but you know, we did last time about AutoML. And, mm-hmm. and so we're even automating the, 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 the kind of time frame from when something is invented to when it's automated is shrinking, right? It took us, it took us 40 years to get from people running, um, you know, doing that level one support to now automating it. Uh, it's taken us like three years to get from people building, you know, hand, handwritten ML models or ha- hand-trained ML models to sort of having it happen automatically. And so I don't know what we should plot that on a graph against like Moore's law and see how we did, but I think we exceeded it. I think we exceeded it by a long shot, but it ultimately, you know, it's creating opportunity as we talked about, and it matters in large part because we're getting rid of those, those, you know, all of the hay around the needle and allowing people to focus on and do what humans do best. And that's all those really hard, complex things, or at least today until, until we figured out how to make a system do that. That's right. So, you know, I think, I think sort of wrap up these two topics, it's, it's automation is king and it's happening in business processes with RPA. It's happening in infrastructure uh, with sort of you know, automation that we've been talking about for a number of years. At the end of the day, uh, humans doing repetitive tasks that just kind of like, you know, copy from column A and paste to column B or look for the red blinking light and respond with a set of commands. I think those are all being rapidly automated in some cases with simplistic automation 
in other cases with you know machine learning and AI, but but nonetheless, it's only a matter of time. And so I think what the the takeaway is is um, we're going to see the workforce realigning and moving up the stack in both of those areas. Well, and as we think about you know this this podcast and a lot of the folks we get to talk to are IT decision makers, is how do you think about workforce planning um, as you bring in more automation? Because it's going to create a more efficient organization. Now, how to use that human capital to best um, you know be to the be to the benefit of your organization? Yeah, and you know it might even break it might even break um, staffing models here, where where you're accustomed to a certain mix of like low cost and high cost resources because you've got all this sort of repetitive work that the low cost resources are doing. But but as you automate more, you, you can't actually hold on to the old mix. You, you got to change the mix, um, which ultimately might be good for everybody because now you're creating more high you know sort of high paying jobs. Before we continue, here's some information on some upcoming events. Rackspace Technology remains committed to using our position as the global leader in multi-cloud to empower you through technology to deliver the future. One way we do this is through the Solve Strategy Series. The Solve Strategy Series is a monthly collection of global roundtable events happening throughout the second half of 2020. These events feature industry influencers, experts, technologists, and leaders covering a variety of topics, including cloud security, AI and ML, multi-cloud strategy, and cloud native enablement. These roundtables always have an industry expert as the moderator, like Cheryl Hung, the VP of Ecosystem at the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, or Jack Aldrich, author and global futurist, to name a few. And they are joined by a panel of experts in their fields to engage in thought-provoking and timely conversations. These events are free, but you do have to register. And if you miss one, they're available on demand. Just head over to solve.rackspace.com and click the link for Solve Strategy Series. And now, back to the conversation. So I saw a slide that you were presenting uh, in the past week. And, uh, you know, at first, as we're getting close to that one, lots of fancy graphics, there's motion, there's transitions, there are, you know, diagrams. And all of a sudden, I'm looking at a picture of a castle from, you know, let's call it the 1100s. I don't know when, but it was old. And now there are pictures of sheep on here. Deconstruct that for us. And not everybody can see it. So paint the picture and it leads us into our next prediction. Yeah, I will. So you're right in the middle of a presentation with lots of lots of technical depth. I, I put a picture of a castle and on the inside of the castle were sheep and on the outside of the castle was a wolf. And I'm trying to illustrate, you know, maybe back to our cyclical comment in this case, cyclical over, you know, a thousand thousands of years. Um, this, this idea that we used to defend our networks at the perimeter. So it was all about fortifying the castle. You know, how high are the walls and what weapons do you have on the outside and who's watching and, you know, how good are you at defending your castle? And as long as the sheep stay inside the four walls, they were probably safe. That's not really, uh, and the analogy there, by the way, to networks is obvious, right? We used to defend with firewalls and other perimeter security, perimeter monitoring devices. And we used to assume that the things inside our network were more or less safe, not Completely, you know, like I think the idea of completely open file shares and stuff went away a long time ago, but we didn't pay nearly as much attention to what happens inside the perimeter as we did outside the perimeter. And so I was illustrating kind of, kind of two concepts. One is that this idea of zero trust, where we really, really can't trust the inside anymore, and I'll, I'll tell you why in a second. And then also this idea that perimeter-based defenses don't scale well into the public cloud. And so I'll actually start with, with that one. When you take perimeter-based approaches, they kind of assume that everything is on a server, on an instance. 
uh, they they assume everything can be defended at the network level. But in like the most extreme example, we have to remember that the API call that was used to create your entire virtual network was an API call that does not target your network. It's an API call that's a public Amazon endpoint. And so if you think about defending everything as um, as a network, you're missing the fact that a lot of the services that you're using to, to whether directly or indirectly, to power this public cloud environment are actually not in your network. They are they are the control plane that the cloud provider gives you. And that's just like one example. There's all these other examples of where you really aren't running on servers all the time. Furthermore, if you try to put appliances kind of in the network path in public cloud, it doesn't scale well because public cloud wasn't designed for a methodology that kind of chokes all traffic at a, at a few key points. We can't we can't go buy this beefy hardware that's meant for line speed wire switching um, while doing packet inspection. Like that doesn't exist in public cloud so much. And so I think when you put all that together, you, you really end up having to rethink security from being a perimeter-based solution to being everywhere um, and, and to being cloud native as well. Well, and you make the, you gave the title inside of the ebook: uh, "The Perimeter is Dead, Long Live the Perimeter." So, if the perimeter is dead, where's the perimeter? Uh, <laughs> I mean, look, I think the perimeter is around every single application. So, you're going to create you're going to create uh, um, you're going to secure each app independently, and it's going to they're each going to have their own security context for who's allowed and when they're allowed, and it's going to be conditional access, right? So, like, it's not just are you Jeff Diverter, it's are you Jeff Diverter, are you on an, a trusted laptop from a trusted location, you know, depending on how secure an application needs to be. And so, I think it's going to be very contextualized, um, and it's going to it's going to uh, depend on the data you're protecting, right? You don't want to go extreme every time, but at the end of the day, uh, there's lots of technology coming out now that lets you kind of instrument around the app and build these layers. Well, and also not just at the app, you can go ahead and deconstruct that as well and not think about a database server, let's say, but think about a database service and pay attention to what's happening inside of there. Who's doing what? When are they doing what? How did they come into the database? Um, so many different ways to think about it. So you're right. Let's think about it from an app perspective. But then how do you deconstruct the app and, and look at the traffic that's going through some of the different components and setting conditions inside of there? It really drives towards what the hyperscalers are doing in their own security. It's what we built a whole offering around utilizing that natively inside of uh, inside of the hyperscale cloud, but then ingesting that back into our own security operations centers inside of Rackspace. Exactly. And actually, you know, you're touching on another another point here is that in the public cloud landscape in particular, you've got the hyperscalers innovating very rapidly with security. And I think, you know, they see security as a competitive advantage. So it's not even really like a monetization for them. It's how do we be the most secure public cloud? How do we make that claim? How do we convince CISOs and CTOs and CIOs that we're the most secure cloud? And so they're innovating rapidly. And what's missing right now is a way to take all that information from all these new security services and actually provide sort of a human-driven operation center that can look at those. So the, funny enough, this is a opposite the last two topics where we said it's all AI. Well, here... The AI is already built in effectively to the hyperscaler solutions it, it, where it matters. And what you're surfacing to the humans is the stuff that AI is saying, hey, this is suspicious. I don't know what to do with this. Someone should look at this. And being able to pull all that into one place and have analysts look at it is actually lacking in the marketplace today. 
Well, and when you look at the types of threats that exist today, I mean, there are still, you know, there's still vulnerabilities. There are still bad people trying to, you know, penetrate specific areas. But so many of the vulnerabilities that exist, even just this year, that we've seen such an increase in with um, with COVID and everybody being home and the remote networking, is just is just phishing attacks. And all of a sudden, somebody who appears like they're the right person is now getting access to things that they shouldn't. In a zero trust model, they're not going to be able to traipse along horizontally through the network should they penetrate into a single system. That's right. Yeah. Um, preventing the sort of extension of a compromise is, re- is really critical. And that's another thing that perimeter-based security wasn't very good at. Um, once you kind of made it past the front door, you know, you may not have unfeathered access to everything, but it was much more simple. And that's, that's how you really yeah. like this whole malware thing or this whole um, ransomware thing kind of took advantage of this, right? If I could just get one user to plug in that USB stick or to download this file, I can find my way around kind of loosely protected systems on the network. And that's that really is the start and end of ransomware. It is. When you think about, um, you know, from my analogy, you show the castle picture with the wolves on the outside. Uh, as we've talked about in the past, I've got chickens and the chickens have a chicken house and uh, they go in at night and the doors close and they're protected. But if I just let one, one wolf in, uh, if I let one fox in, then I lose the whole flock. And that's the whole perimeter base. If the perimeter fails, the insides are gone. Now, it doesn't mean you don't need a perimeter. You still need to set up some walls, um, but you also don't want to trust uh, really anything that's inside of there. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, by no means are we saying for those things that you can put a perimeter around, you, you shouldn't take it down. We're not. We're not taking down our castles, but but we're just we're just not relying on them anymore as the exclusive control. And as we do this, by the way, I do think we can loosen up some things. For example, I've written a couple times during the COVID sort of response by saying, look, these VPNs and these remote desktop solutions, they're going to be a problem. They're, they're just too much work to maintain. And in fact, they expose too much risk now. You're giving kind of network level access to people from home. So I do think what we'll see come out of the other end of this, the, the positive here is while the perimeter is there, those services that you expect your remote workers to, to access remotely, maybe someday, we can dream of the day, that they won't be behind a VPN of some kind but instead be properly secured by these zero trust solutions such that you don't, you know, you get much more micro segmentation as to what you're accessing and a much better user experience as well. All right. So I think with our first two predictions, we think about all things automation uh, in different aspects, but, but with this one and it, well, with those other two, it's somewhat easy to think of what their company's next step is going to be. Hey, I don't have this. I'd be interested in getting it. Who are, who are the main players and what can I do with it? Um, but in the case of zero trust, in the case of the perimeter's dead, long live the perimeter, you know, a company who's still trying to think through this stuff, what are, what's your recommendation for them? What's their first couple of steps that they're going to take as they explore what this looks like to them? Oh, man. You know, this is really tough because not zero trust is less of a technology and more of a mindset. So, you know, this is where you want to, there, there's some parts of zero trust or some aspects of it that we've been doing as an industry, like, like multi-factor authentication is certainly an element that everyone is familiar with that is like a core tenant of, of these approaches. But then, but then there's more than that. There's this whole micro-segmentation, which is a whole new way you have to think about how you build, deploy, and segment applications. I don't, I'm not like, I'm not prepared to recommend a particular technology player because I don't think there is a dominant uh, solution out there, nor do I think it's one technology. I, do, I think it's more about, about a mindset shift in your organization about how you're approaching security. 
Yeah. So it's not necessarily calling your, your CISO and saying, tell me about security. And if all they have to tell you about is what they plugged into the network, you may have, you may have some opportunity to grow. That's right. It, it, it's gotta be, it's gotta be this idea that we live in one giant connected network, all of us together. And so in the yeah. context of this big giant connected network, how are you making sure that only the proper people and the proper devices um, I can't stress the device part enough. It's it's a lot har- harder to do than user authentication, but the problem is a vulnerable device, um, especially unless like bring your own um, device model and the work from home model. That's going to be what gets you more than a user. Okay, so those are the three recommendations or the three predictions that we have for for this quarter. It's all around all things RPA. It's around what's happening with the the level one type of engineer with the advent of AI ops. And then what we were just talking about, and that is what is the perimeter in your organization? Because what you thought it was before isn't anymore. So any parting thoughts on that or recommendation for folks, Tolga, from your position? Oh, man. Um I think uh, no. I think I think we've covered all of it pretty well. But I, you know, just uh, I think we should all get get on board with the idea that we need to automate business processes that are manual. We need to automate infrastructure processes that are manual, and we need to rethink about how we look at security holistically as we go into twenty twenty one. This has been Cloud Talk. You can find Cloud Talk wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And be sure to check out more content from Rackspace Solve at solve.rackspace.com. And there you have it. Rackspace's Q4 of 2020 technology predictions. I hope you found them insightful. Now, these predictions are also expounded upon in a new ebook that we've made available for you over on solve.rackspace.com. It's free to download and there's a wealth of additional information available inside of it. Not to mention the graphics team did an incredible job. Now, these predictions are an outflow from us here in the office of the CTO at Rackspace, but it takes an incredible amount of work to pull things like this together. And we are incredibly grateful for the entire team who played a significant role in creating it. Now, next week's episode is super interesting. It's around all things ethics in IT, and we cover the topic from several different angles and a few you might not have expected. Until then, this is Jeff Deverter with Cloud Talk.